for us. We're going to be in the book of Matthew again as we began a series last week uh, on the kingdom and a look at uh, the kingdom of God throughout the book of Matthew. And uh, this is the series that's going to lead us up to our move um, of us going to the new property. And uh, once we get there, just of what it looks like for us to be kingdom-minded and us to be thinking about uh, God and uh, his advancement in this world. Um, and so, uh, just a reminder, the book of Matthew uh, is just uh, uh, really emphasizing the idea of the kingdom of God and, uh, and the gospel of the kingdom. Uh, and, and so Jesus, when he uh, announces his ministry, he begins with the kingdom. Uh, I think a lot of times we begin with an understanding of our sin and Jesus' death on the cross for our sin, which of course is very much a part of any good theology of Jesus and his atoning death for sin. Uh, but I'm not sure uh, that's the totality of what he says is the gospel. Not that it's wrong, but is it uh, fully complete? And, um, and so... Uh, when we uh, think of these things, uh, we're going to be in the book of Matthew, just looking at what is the gospel of the kingdom. And so uh, I welcome you to stand with me as we just express our submission to the word of God. He speaks, we desire to hear. And uh, so we're going to look um, at the first few verses and then uh, kind of get to the rest of the passage as we go through. Matthew writes this, Now when he, that's Jesus, heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. For those dwelling in the region and, and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. And from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Let's pray. Uh, God, be in our midst, and uh, Father, would you convey to us, what is the gospel of the kingdom? Uh, Father, not just the... I get my sins forgiven, but Father, what is it for you to rule and reign over everything? And that begun and has begun, uh, and yet has not become uh, to uh, gotten to its fulfillment uh, of the end of time. Father, we live in that time frame uh, of the beginning of the kingdom, but yet not the fulfillment. And so, Father, uh, help us to see the beautiful picture of the good news of your reign and your rule in this world. God, would you rule in our hearts, but would you also uh, take and see uh, more of your rule manifest and evidenced uh, in the community around us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. If you would please be seated. So as you know, a couple of years ago, um, probably about four or five now, I took up uh, my new obsession, which is golf, and uh, um, if you've ever played golf, you know it's the most frustrating game on earth, and uh, so I took up a, a very odd thing to uh, be my respite in life, uh, but um, if you know anything about uh, people that uh, start 
just playing and pick up a golf club and they, they try to play. Um, most people, uh, I would say most, almost everybody, hit this huge sweeping slice. So they're trying to hit it straight and, uh, and they swing and they hit it and it starts sort of straight, but then it takes this right turn and it goes uncontrollably off to the right. And no matter how hard people try, they can't stop it. If they set up left, they slice. They set up right, they slice. Uh, they, they'll try to slow down. They'll try to speed up. They'll try whatever they can, but they can't stop doing it. Okay? For decades, some people would be in this place where they can't stop hitting it, where it flies off to the right. And so how do you change that? How would you change somebody from hitting a terrible slice? Well, one famous golf teacher, his name's Mike Bender, uh, he has this saying where uh, you practice a mile to gain an inch. What he means is that in order to change a swing path that people have, can, uh, have had wrong for 20 or 30 years, you have to practice so far in the other direction that you actually only attain that much of a swing change. And you practice a mile that way to gain incremental change, and then you actually learn how to hit a golf ball. And so we think about that, and we're like, huh, that makes sense. You know, if we want to make a new change in our life, you know, if we want to be more healthy, uh, or we, we want to change what we eat, we want to have more organization in life, you know, we, we take a step in that direction, and we do incremental change over time, and then over a long while, a change occurs. Is that what biblical change and biblical transformation looks like? I would say initially, the initial change that God's people walk into is not, you know what, I'm going to chart a new course and I'm going to take a half an inch step. The idea of, of the beginning of a life of faith, Jesus uses the word repent. To repent uh, is the idea of the beginning of what it is in the life of God's people. That it's not just, you know what, you need to rehab your life, you need to go to church more, you need to, you know what, make better decisions, you need to uh, do less bad things. We don't need an incremental change in our lives. We need a complete and utter transformation. We need God to take out an old heart and give us a new one. We need to pass from death to life. And so when in the beginning stages of what it looks like to actually walk with God or enter the kingdom of God, Jesus uses the word to repent or repentance. Repentance, you know, how does somebody enter the kingdom of God is through repentance. It's not just a little bit of a gain here and there. It is a transformative act. It is someone passing from darkness to light. Okay, uh, and so in our passage, in, in uh, these verses uh, of setting up this uh, passage where Jesus says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, he talks about, Matthew talks about, uh, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Basically, it's, it's up in Capernaum, it's near, uh, it, it's uh, you know, in, in the Galilean area, the northern kingdom. And what happened about 700 years before Jesus walks on the earth is that the Assyrians came in and they took uh, God's people and they conquered them and dispersed them all over the place. Why? Because they were an unfaithful and rebellious people. 
And so for 700 years in the land of Zebulun, in the land of Naphtali, there was really an, uh, just a lack of knowledge, a lack of um, really knowing the things of God. And even 100 years prior to Jesus, there, there was a restoration of, uh, of a sense of, uh, the things of, of God's people, but it was more cultural, and they still didn't even know the things of God and the, and the ways of the covenant or the laws of God's people. And so you could say about ne Zebulun and Naphtali that they did not know God. And so how does the prophet Isaiah speak about these people in verse 15? That the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, in the Galilee, Galilee of the Gentiles, these people were what? Dwelling in darkness, and those people have seen a great light. For those dwelling in the region and the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. And so when Jesus ends up in this area, it, it, it's that it is truly the, the light of God shining into a very dark Place. And if you think about darkness and light, it's not incremental. It's not that you go from darkness to, you know, there's an all or nothing sense of darkness and light uh, in someone going from being unable to see to having light to live by. And so into those people, to the people living in darkness, the people that don't know God, Jesus comes and he speaks and he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Basically, the kingdom is coming in a new way with the advent or the, the arrival of Jesus. And he says, repent. So what is the word repent? We talked a little bit about it with the kids, but what does the word repent or repentance? Now, this is not penance, meaning uh, that you uh, do some form of activity to pay for or kind of rehab yourself and you pay off your sin. That is not a biblical concept. Repentance is a turning from something and a turning to someone. That you are a member of one kingdom, the idea of rebellion or unfaithfulness, basically a kingdom uh, that is not God's kingdom, and you need to enter the kingdom of Jesus. The way into the kingdom is not simply to remedy your behavior, or maybe even look more like those who have a lifestyle of the kingdom, the way into the kingdom is repentance. And so this word used in the Greek by other people out, uh, at, at that same time outside of biblical literature. So, you know, the, the people like Plato, uh, Josephus, who was a historian um, at the time, the, this word repent has this idea of, of a changing of your mind, okay? Uh, now, we would say wisdom would actually to have something figured out before it goes badly, right? That's what wisdom is. Repentance is when something goes badly, you actually recognize it and change either your opinion or your decision or your mind over that. And so when Jesus is saying repent, he's not saying you should have figured this out and you need to get it right this time, it's you have entered in. You are in darkness. You have uh, walked after and actually been a part of a kingdom that is not uh, in submission to me. You missed it. And the call of the gospel is to repent, to come back to, to turn from 
something, either what you've trusted in, your way of life, another kingdom, and to turn to Jesus. It's the idea of a, a reconsideration. Uh, and so what's beautiful in that is if you're somebody here and you're saying, you know what? I've lived in unfaithfulness to God. I've lived in rebellion against him. I've served myself my whole life. Uh, I have charted my own path. I've resisted him. If that's you, the message of the gospel is good news. Repent. Turn from that and turn to Jesus because the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so, uh, but what's really interesting is as you uh, add uh, this word used in the New Testament, it's not just a change of your opinion or a change of your mind, but as you read through it, there's really, uh, there's a change, but there's also a regret or a grieving over missing the mark at first. It's to recognize, like we talked about with the kids, not just saying sorry, but to see your sin, to see your waywardness, to see your rebellion against God, to see your unfaithfulness. And God brings about a righteous grieving over our sins so that we might understand our need for a Savior, our need for forgiveness, our need for a King. So this idea of, of repentance is all throughout, the, all throughout the New Testament. It's all throughout uh, God's people in the Old Testament, even to the point that in Luke chapter 5, Jesus says this, I did not come. Is that in there? Good. I, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And so the repentance is the good news of the gospel. Now here's, here's something that you have to know. It's not your repentance that saves you. Repentance is the method, not the methodology, but the way in which we actually receive the grace of God. So it's not just a New Testament concept, it's that of the old as well. Look at Ezekiel chapter 18 uh, in verse 30. Therefore I will judge you, God says, O house of Israel. That's God's people. Every one, according to his ways, declares uh, the Lord God. Repent and turn from all your transgressions, lest or else iniquity will be your ruin. So turn from what you've trusted in. And But is it just turning from? No, but it's also turning to. In Joel chapter 2, uh, the ver verses 12 to 13, uh, says this, uh, that the Lord declares, Yet even now, return to me with your whole heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning. Rend or tear your hearts, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. So there is this, uh, there, the, the last verse was, was turned from your transgressions and your sins. This one is turned to, uh, return to the Lord with your whole heart. And why? Because it is God who is gracious and merciful. The idea of repenting, of seeing your sin, of seeing things in ways that we've gone our own way, that's not a fun process. And so that sounds like death. But it's in the recognition of that that we bring before a holy and righteous God that we repent before him and then we find his mercy and his grace. 
we, I think we naturally want to see a problem, fix a problem, and just chart a new course. But that is not biblical repentance, and that's not biblical salvation. Biblical repentance is to see it and to bring it before the Lord so that he might restore, that he might heal, he might forgive, and he might give uh, a new course in life. Uh, so there's a turning from and a turning to. But here's what's interesting, is people resist change. So uh, a psychiatrist, Dave, uh, Dr. Steven uh, Graz, uh, he, he was studying how people uh, just kind of resist change, and he was actually doing it even when people were threatened with their own harm or disaster. And, uh, and he's a secular uh, psychiatrist, and he was doing research on what, how people respond when fire alarms go off, okay? Fire alarms go off, you're gonna, you know, uh, take heed and actually save yourself, right? Uh, but instead of leaving the building immediately, he found that people would actually stick around and look for more information. Uh, and the, even when they gained information, they wouldn't move. So in 1985, there was a fire that broke out in the stadium of a soccer game in England, uh, and 56 people uh, were killed because they heard the alarm, uh, but then they stayed kind of watching the fire and watching the game at the same time, and they stayed there. The alarms were going off, but they didn't heed them. Another uh, place that he, he saw this happen was actually a supper club in Kentucky. Uh, and so this alarm goes off, uh, and these people, even when they knew they had to leave, uh, to, to, uh, to basically save themselves, though they couldn't get out of their old habits. And so they knew to leave the supper club, they actually had to pay for their meal. And so to, they stood in line. And actually, I'm not trying to... They stood in line as the building burned around them. 177 people died. What's staggering is I think we resist change with everything in our being that even when it is our own harm, we don't want to change the way that we do uh, what we do. And so this, this psychiatrist says this, after 25 years of psycho, uh, psychoanalysis, he says, I can't say that any of this surprises me. We resist change. Committing ourselves to a small change, even one that is unmistakably in our best interest, is often more frightening than ignoring a dangerous situation. We don't want an exit if we don't know exactly where it is going to take us. Even, or maybe perhaps especially in an emergency, we want to know what the new story is that we're stepping into before we exit the old one. I think the point is, is we love our old story, even it, if it is to your own harm. And Jesus is saying, the kingdom of heaven is here. My rule and my reign is here. Repent. Your old kingdom that you're trusting in, you're, the, trusting in yourself and all those different aspects, is what is to your harm, but yet there's something in us that wants to stay there. Jesus is saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven 
is at hand. And what does that look like comes in verse 18 and, and following. Look at verses 18 to 20. So Jesus says this, And while walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. So Jesus says, Follow me. Uh, and immediately they drop their nets and follow. In a sense, they go from uh, kind of serving the, themselves and, and not following him to following Jesus. And so there's this sense where they begin to follow. What happens in verse 21 is very similar. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately le they left the boat and their father and followed him. And so uh, Simon and Andrew, they drop their nets and they follow Jesus. James and John, uh, they, they leave their boat, they even leave their father there, and they follow Jesus. So what does a life of repentance, of actually uh, transferring our trust from something to, to, to someone else, to Jesus, is exhibited by them following but I, I want to caution us. Let's not overread those passages. Yes, they left their boats. Uh, yes, they left fishing um, to follow Jesus. Um, they, they follow Jesus, certainly. But are they renouncing fishing for the rest of their life? No. Are they renouncing their father? And, and, leave, and, and no. Why? Because when Jesus appears to them after, their re after his resurrection, what were they doing? They were fishing. Okay? What had Jesus done? He had gotten fish, and he's cooking them up. Uh, and he made breakfast for them. They go out, and, and they see him on the shore, and he says, Hey, you know, uh, what'd you catch? Knowing that it was nothing. And he's like, Hey, how about throw your net on the other side? And they catch 153 fish. That's a boatload of fish uh, and it's like oh that's what that means anyway um, and uh, but they get to land Jesus was already there uh, back in in Matthew 4 yes they left their father but that doesn't mean they renounce family to follow Jesus because later in Matthew in Matthew 8 Peter is there and he cares for his mother-in-law who's sick and they, it says in Luke that they appealed to Jesus on her behalf so let's not overread, but they definitely transferred what they were trusting in from their livelihood uh, of fishing to following Christ. Uh, and uh, so they, they really um, understand what it is to follow Jesus. They're turning from, turning to. But what is the gospel? The gospel is the gospel of the kingdom. Look at verse, uh, uh, verse 23 of chapter 4. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. 
So Jesus came proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing diseases. The gospel, the good news, is the, is the message of the rule and the reign of Jesus. That's the good news. And where does that begin most pointedly is us submitting and recognizing my sin needs to be paid for by a holy and righteous God. That's why we talk about the cross all the time. But the gospel of the kingdom doesn't merely stop at my personal salvation. It, it says in Colossians that Jesus is reconciling all things by the blood of the cross, in that the cross is the beginning place of what was broken and making it new again. That's where we find forgiveness. But what's the evidence of the kingdom? He came proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and doing what? Healing diseases and healing sickness. More on that next week, but it's the evidence of the resurrection taking root uh, in this world, that things that were broken are now made right again. So to repent, if the gospel is that of the kingdom, to repent is not just simply uh, to turn away from your sin, to trust in Jesus for, for forgiveness. The gospel of the kingdom is to yield to God's rule and to God's reign. And so the gospel of the kingdom is that he rules and he reigns all things, including your life. And he's a good king. He's not wanting to make your life miserable. Uh, the evidence of that being this healing of sickness and disease. And we'll get to that in a second. But how does somebody live in the kingdom? How is somebody to live in the kingdom of God? I want you to flip over to Matthew 18. And as I thought through this this, this past weekend, this point actually changed for me. Matthew 18. Because I wanted to stop at verse 4, but I can't. So let's read uh, and look, because his disciples were there. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? So there, there's not only how do I get into the kingdom, but how do I become great in the kingdom? That's what the disciples are asking. And calling to him a child. So Jesus calls a child to himself, and he put him, the child, in the midst of them, and he said, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And that's where I really was thinking that we would stop, that the, di the disciples are, are wanting to know, you know, how, how do you live in this kingdom? Not how you get in, but Jesus has already talked about the least in the kingdom and the greatest in the kingdom. And they're like, how do I become the greatest? You know, how do I strive to become the greatest in this kingdom? And did you see the word that Jesus begins with? In verse 3, unless you what? Turn. Okay, it's a different word than repent, but the same concept. Unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless you turn and quit striving to make your life work out and, and quit striving to be the, the, the greatest among you, the one that is self-advancing, unless you understand what it is to become and change your thinking to become like a child, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. But then he says this, who's the one that's greatest? So the one that is greatest in the kingdom of heaven is verse 4. Whoever humbles himself like this child 
is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, I don't think we get the full weight of this because we live in a child-centered world, meaning like most families live as, uh, you know, kind of like to raise the kids and the kids are central and, and, and everything. That was not the ancient world, okay? The ancient world was, uh, was not a kid-centric world. So even at times, kids were silent, kids were um, kind of, uh, until they grew and they could, earn, you know, kind of earn their weight uh, and be a help to the family. Uh, this was not like we lived, where everything is idolized in our children. You know, children at times were thought of as being in the way. And so when Jesus says, you have to humble yourself like a child, he's saying far more than what we are saying. He's saying far more than that. You know, it's the sense where, where, uh, where Tim Keller would say, uh, it's what true greatness is. Humility, the willingness to take the low position, the willingness to be the servant of all. To basically enter the kingdom of heaven, you've got to humble yourself. To live in the kingdom of heaven, you have to humble yourself. It's not just the entrance, it is the way of life as well. I think the kingdom, or the way that we live in this life, is to promote ourselves and to advance ourselves. And, and Jesus saying, no, the way to live in my kingdom is to live in humility. But let me submit to you uh, to go one verse beyond where I was thinking we would stop. Is it merely to live in the kingdom is to have a heart that is humble before God and before others? I would say it's also to welcome those of humble status in life. Verse 5, Jesus says, For whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. That the, king, the work of the kingdom is not merely humble yourself is not merely put yourself of low place. It is not just merely quit thinking about yourself and think about somebody else. The, the, the work of the kingdom is to receive someone who would take the place of a child in the ancient world. Lowly, needy, vulnerable, someone who cannot provide for themselves. So to welcome a child as that is to welcome me. And so in our small group, it was asked, if someone left a child on your doorstep, what would you do? The answer seems pretty easy, right? You'd take them in. You'd clothe them. You'd feed them. You'd care for them. That's what we would do. Yet, um, yet in, our, in our counties around us, Lexington, Richland County, there's 700 kids in foster care. And how many foster homes are there? About 400. And of those, probably about, maybe not all of them are available at any given time, so maybe two to 300 homes for 700 kids in our surrounding counties. Jesus says, whoever welcomes uh, such a child, one of these children welcomes Kingdom living is not just humbling yourself. Kingdom living is welcoming people into our lives. 
And I'm not saying to you that the only way to fulfill verse 5 of chapter 18 is to go and foster children. But it is definitely a way. There is a need in our world for kids to find homes and to be loved and to be received by God's people. Kingdom work is not merely introducing people so that they might ask for forgiveness for their sins and find the grace of God. Kingdom work is also reversing what is wrong. Jesus healed sickness and disease, and he made it right. Things that are broken in this world for God's glory and the rule and the reign of God would be set right. Would we be a church that doesn't just say that in word, but would take steps to do it? There's a need there. There's a need all over the place in our world. Will you take a step to live as God calls us to live in the kingdom? To receive one such child in my name, Jesus says, you receive me. Let's pray. God, um, would you uh, be in our midst and would you take uh, a, a kingdom challenge God, would you bring us to a place by your spirit of humility that, God, we can admit that we cannot save ourselves, that we need your death on the cross for our sin. But then, God, that we would take steps towards seeing your rule and your reign become more evident in our world. Father, there's needs all around us. Uh, there are evident ones uh, that uh, oftentimes we don't look at. So, Father, thanks for those who are willing to ask hard questions that might put us in uncomfortable places that might rock our world. Uh, Father, so that you might bring us to have kingdom minds as we live. Father, not for our own well-being, not for our own kingdom, but that your rule, your reign, and your glory would ring out in this world. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.